Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Can any of you relate with the woman in this cartoon? She's sitting on a plane between two other passengers, and she's reading a book. And the caption reads, Wendy gets privacy by creating her own book covers. And the book cover that she has created for herself is titled, Stabbing Strangers Who Talk to You. (laughs) You know, sometimes it's just easier to avoid uncomfortable interactions, isn't it? And in this increasingly polarized world, it's not just introverts who feel this way. Sometimes extroverts feel this way as well. We're living in a society, in a world that's growing more and more divided. We live, we're, our country, our, our communities, even our churches are growing further and further apart. And it's gotten to the place where some have started to wonder whether we are better off apart. Rezla Aslan is a TV producer and a uh, religious scholar. And when he was asked about the, the polarization of our society, this was his response. He said, I'm not sure what's so wrong with polarization. I really don't understand what the issue is. If the other person on the other side of the aisle doesn't even understand my dignity as a human being, then I'm perfectly fine being in a different camp. Like, I want polarization. And I get what he's saying. It's not just easier to be separate from those who differ from us. It's also sometimes safer. Because when we expose ourselves to those who disagree with us, we risk being attacked. We risk being hurt. And so many have started to believe that our differences necessitate division, that we are better apart. How many of you have ever been to Chicago before? About here? Yeah, a lot of people. So Chicago is beautiful and it's diverse, but it is also one of the most segregated cities in the United States. It has 23 distinct linguistically isolated neighborhoods, and people tend to stick to their own boroughs. So if you know, if you know a person's ethnic background or their race, then you can predict with a fair bit of accuracy where they live and even what sports teams they root for. Like, blacks typically live in the south of Chicago, and they root for the White Sox. And whites tend to live in North Chicago and root for the Cubs. Why? Because it's easier to live with people who are like us. It cuts down on the messy and sometimes violent interactions that occur when we interact with people who disagree with us. See, our differences encourage division. And those divisions have even crept into the church. Comedian M.O. Phillips tells a joke about how ridiculous those divisions can actually become. He says, I was walking down a bridge one day when I saw a man standing at the edge ready to jump. So I rushed over to him and I said, stop, don't jump. You have too much to live for. And he said, what do I have to live for? 
And so I said, well, are you religious? And he said, yes. And I said, me too. Are you a Christian or are you a Buddhist? And he said, I'm a Christian. And I said, me too. Are you a, a Baptist or are you a Methodist? And he said, I'm a Baptist. And I said, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or are you Baptist Church of the Lord? And he said, I'm Baptist Church of God. And I said, me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you reformed Baptist Church of God? And he said, oh, I'm reformed Baptist Church of God. And I said, me too. Are you reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1897? Or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? And he said, I'm Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. And I said, die heretic, and I pushed him off. <laughs> now we laugh, but we could easily replace the word Baptist with Adventist and have a very similar joke. Because we often behave as if our differences necessitate division. We believe that we are better apart. Throughout the pandemic, many people left the churches that they had been a part of for many years because of their stance on COVID-19 or one of the many social issues that were brought to life during the pandemic. See, we allow our differences to divide us. And yet, Jesus is very clear in his final prayer for his followers. His final prayer before he was crucified, he prays that all of us would be one. See, this is the prayer that we've been studying throughout the series to discover what it means to be a Christian in a rapidly changing world. And what we found out is that God wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. He wants us to remain connected to the world, but not corrupted by the evil one. He neither wants us to abandon the world nor assimilate into it. But at the end of his prayer, he doesn't pray for the world. He prays for his followers. He prays for us, that all of us may be one. So why? Why does Jesus pray for unity? Why does he want us to stay together when it's so much easier for us to be apart? What makes unity worth fighting for? That's what Jesus prays about next in John chapter 17, starting with verse 20. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up or launch the app and flip to John chapter 17, starting with verse 20. Jesus prays. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So he's not just praying for his immediate followers, but all of us who are to come. And this is what he wants for all of us. He prays that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. He prays that all of us would be one. He uses the metaphor, he uses the metaphor of the unity of the Trinity to describe the relationship that we are to have with each other. He wants all of us who claim to follow Jesus to be one. 
So what does that look like? What does it mean to be in unity with each other? Well, Leon Morris, in his commentary, The Gospel According to John, writes about this passage. Jesus prays that the disciples, prays first that the disciples may be one, and then that they may be in the Father and the Son, just as the Father and the Son are in one another. This does not mean that the unity between the Father and the Son is the same as that between the believers and God. But it does mean that there is an analogy. The Father is in the Son and does his works. The Son is in the Father. The two are one and yet distinct. So in measure is it with believers. Without losing their identity, they are to be in the Father and the Son. Notice what he says here. Without losing their identity, without losing our identity, we are to be one. In other words, our unity doesn't come from uniformity. That's so important. We don't have to be exactly the same in order to stay together. We can be different and yet remain undivided. Because that's exactly the type of community that Jesus created from the very beginning. See, he called people from disparate backgrounds to join together into one community. Jesus intentionally created a community of contrasting components. Just look at the people he called to be a part of his original 12 disciples. First, he goes out and he calls Simon, who's a zealot. And if you know anything about zealots, you know that they hated the Romans. And anybody who worked with the Romans, like tax collectors. And then Jesus goes out and calls Matthew. And what was Matthew's occupation? He was a tax collector. So he calls these two men from opposite sides of the spectrum, brings them together, and says, why don't the two of you room together? You'll have interesting conversations. See, nobody had seen a community like this before. One that was different and yet remained undivided. And this tradition continued even after Jesus left. The early church, it was filled with both Jews and Gentiles, with Pharisees and prostitutes, with slaves and slave owners, with Jewish nationalists and Roman centurions, all worshiping together as one, as one. See, they were radically different, but they didn't allow their differences to divide them. And it wasn't easy. Staying together for them was not easy. Just read through the book of Acts or any of, of the other letters in the New Testament, and you'll see that they struggled. They debated many things. They, they argued about whether they should eat food sacrificed to idols or whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised to enter the church or, or how to handle church discipline. These were not small issues. These were major concerns that they cared very deeply about. So differences in God's community, in the church, are nothing new because in this world, differences are inevitable. Differences are inevitable. I mean, just think about even the minor differences that we argue passionately about, like daylight savings. 
Should we keep daylight savings or should we get rid of it? We passionately argue about it. Or how to behave on a plane. Should we be able to recline our seats on a plane or should we stay upright the whole time? We passionately disagree. Or haystacks. Should we use tortilla chips as the base of our haystacks? Or should we use Fritos as God intended? <laughs> we passionately disagree about it. See, even minor differences can lead to major conflict. Just this past week, a video of two passengers on an airplane screaming at each other went viral. Apparently, one of the passengers wanted to lean her seat back, and the other one pushed back. I mean, literally pushed back with her feet. See, conflict is inevitable. Differences are inevitable. But sometimes we believe that our differences necessitate division, that our conflicts will break our community. But if that's true, our only two options are either to maximize the distance from each other or minimize our differences with each other. We either have to completely separate from, separate from those who disagree with us or we have to pretend like these differences don't exist. And it's usually the fear of the second that drives us to the first. You know, we fear that the only way to stay in community with people who disagree with us is to pretend those differences don't exist, to sacrifice, compromise our conscience, to give up our uniqueness. Because we believe that, it drives us to divide. And yet Jesus, Jesus was very clear, we learned this two weeks ago, that the way that we prevent from assimilating into this world is not to abandon it. The way that we stay unique, the way that we, we stay true to our conscience is not by retreating from the world, but by remaining in the Word. See, it is our connection to Jesus that keeps us from being corrupted by the evil one. So instead of running away from the world, running away from those who disagree with us, we should be running towards Jesus so that we can remain in this world. See, Jesus shows us that while differences are inevitable, dividing is not. Dividing is our choice. And Jesus urges us to choose unity. So why? Why does Jesus want us to stay together when it's easier to be apart? What makes unity worth fighting for? Take a look at what Jesus says right at the beginning of verse 23. He says, I in them and you in me. I in them and you and me. So that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus says that what causes the world to know that he was sent by God, what causes the world to believe that they are loved 
by God is our unity, his followers' unity, our uncommon, undeniable, unimaginable unity is what inspires this world to believe. Just think about that for a moment. Jesus doesn't say that it is our political activism that inspires the world to believe. He doesn't say that it's our well-constructed arguments that inspire the world to believe. He doesn't even say that it's our knowledge of end-time events that inspires the world to believe. All of those things are important. They are part of following Jesus. But when he faced death, when he faced the final moments of his life, he focused on one concept as being of paramount importance for all of his followers, and it is this, that we would exhibit uncommon, undeniable, unimaginable unity. That we would be different, yet remain undivided. That's what makes us compelling. See, the, our ability to love each other the way that Jesus loves us, with a sacrificing, life-giving love, with a love that, that brought heaven to earth and life to death, with a love that turns the other cheek and goes the extra mile, a love that doesn't allow our disagreements to divide us. That's what inspires the world to believe. See, Jesus is saying that just like, just like a Christ-like love is the distinguishing mark of a Christian, a Christ-like unity is the distinguishing mark of his church. And that's what our world is longing to see. People who can disagree with each other, sometimes even passionately disagree with each other and still love one another. That's why... Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech resonates so deeply inside us. Because when he says, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood, it awakens a longing in our hearts. It's the same longing that Jesus stirred up when he came. He left heaven above to come to earth below and show that this kind of love that this kind of unity is possible. See, that's what inspires our world to believe, according to Jesus. And so Philip Yancey, in his article, Denominational Diagnostics, writes, As I read accounts of the New Testament church, no characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity. Beginning with the Pentecost, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked the Jewish congregations. Paul, who as a rabbi had given thanks daily, daily that he was not born a woman, slave, or Gentile, marveled over the radical change. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One modern Indian pastor told me, most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, 
can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But in my area, only Christians strive, however ineptly, to mix men and women of different castes, races, and social groups. That's, that's the real miracle. See, this is what makes us compelling. Our unity is what inspires the world to believe. That we can passionately disagree with each other and still love one another? That is the real miracle. So every conflict, every disagreement, every argument is an opportunity for us to inspire the world to believe that this kind of love, that this kind of unity is possible. So then how do we do it? How do we love like that? How do we use our unavoidable conflict to create uncommon community? Listen to what Jesus says right there at the beginning of verse 23. He says, I in them and you in me, so that this is how they may be brought to complete unity. See, it is Christ in us that unites us to each other. The more in tune with Christ we become, the more united with each other we will be. A.W. Tozer, he said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. The more in tune with Christ we become, the more united to each other we will be. Now, our orchestra, before every performance, they tune to the oboe. Did you know that? Something that I learned. Our, our oboist, Rick Olson, will play a note at exactly 440 hertz, and then every other instrument will tune to him. And so our orchestra today has agreed very graciously to demonstrate this process for us. So take a listen. Amen. Let's give them a hand. Thank you so much for doing that. I said during first service, it's not, it's not every pastor who gets the opportunity to work with an entire orchestra on a sermon illustration. So thank you. Thanks to all of you. And we truly are blessed here. Notice what happened there. As the orchestra members tuned, they tuned themselves to the oboe, they automatically became more in tune with each other. So that's exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage. It is by tuning to him that we become more in tune with each other. And that makes sense. Because the only way to create a Christ-like unity is by exhibiting Christ-like love. The only way that we can differ and not divide is if we exhibit a life-giving, sacrificing love. So... If we truly want to realize Jesus' prayer for us, for unity, we have to make sure that every day we are tuning ourselves to Jesus. 
See, we're a lot like instruments. We go out of tune quickly. Now, some instruments tend to hold their tune more than others, right? Pianos hold their tune a little longer than violins, right? We're a lot more like violins than pianos. We go out of tune more rapidly. And so we have to make sure that we are constantly tuning ourselves to Jesus, meditating on his word, spending time with him in prayer. That's how God brings us in tune with Jesus. That's how he grows a Christ-like love within us. See, unity isn't created by what I do in others, but by what God does in me. Let me say that again. We don't create unity by forcing others to tune to us, but by ensuring that we are in tune with Christ. That means, that means it's not our responsibility to make sure that everyone else follows Christ the same way that we do. Come on now. It's not our job to ensure uniformity. Our job is simply to make sure that we are in tune with Jesus. And then we point others towards him. Pastor Anita Roberts, she shared a parenting tip with me many years ago that I found very helpful. And I'd like to share it with you today. She told me, don't try to replace the Holy Spirit in your children's lives because you'll only get in the way. Isn't that good? Don't try to replace the Holy Spirit in your children's lives. As a parent, the temptation is strong to believe that I am responsible for how my children turn out. But the reality is, none of us, not even parents, have that much control over another person. We don't. So our role is simply to be an instrument in the work that the Holy Spirit is already doing in our children's lives. I can't control my children, but I can entrust them to one who will never stop working with them. And that's pretty good advice, not just for parents, but for all of us. Don't try to replace the Holy Spirit in anyone's life. That's not our job. That's his. Our job is simply to point them to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that we shouldn't share the things that we've learned from Christ with others. Of course, God has called us. He has called us to, to build each other up. And that means that sometimes we have to challenge each other. But it never means that we get to police someone else's relationship with God. Our role is simply to point to Jesus. And this is something that our Adventist pioneers discovered many years ago. This is the reason why they push back on the formation of creeds. Do you know what a creed is? A creed is a non-negotiable set of beliefs that everyone has to adhere to, or you can't be a part of this community. So they push back on that. I mean, listen to what some of our founders said. This is J.N. Loughborough. He wrote, the first step of apostasy is to set up a creed telling us what we shall believe. The second is to make that creed a test of fellowship. 
The third is to try members by that creed. The fourth is to denounce as heretics those who do not believe that creed. And the fifth is to commence persecution against such. Wow. This is James White. Church force cannot produce unity, but has caused divisions and has given to religious sects and parties almost innumerable. James White, 1874. And this one from Ellen White. The church may pass resolution upon resolution to put down all disagreements of opinions, but we cannot force the mind and will and thus root out disagreement. These resolutions may conceal discord, but they cannot quench it and establish perfect agreement. Nothing, nothing can perfect unity in the church but the spirit of Christ-like forbearance. Amen. We don't create unity by forcing others to tune to us. We create unity by ensuring that we are attuned to Christ. So don't try to be the Holy Spirit in someone else's life. Prior to coming to the Loma Linda University Church, I had the privilege of pastoring a very unique congregation. It's unique because four different groups merged together to make one church, the San Diego Central Seventh-day Adventist Church. So four different groups. It was a Korean church, a multicultural church, a Korean-American group, and a Filipino group all merged to make one church. And as you can imagine, that process was challenging. I mean, we worshiped differently than each other. We operated church differently than we, each other. We, we communicated differently than each other. So we faced some deep challenges and disagreements. One was potluck. You know, if you've ever been to an Asian church before, you know how essential potluck is to the life of the church. I mean, if worship is right here, potluck is like right about there. Am I right? Yes. Because that's where community is formed. But if you're not used to hosting a weekly whole church potluck, it's exhausting. So we had arguments. We had disagreements of how to do potluck. But despite the challenges that we faced, the elders of that church were firmly convicted that God had called us to be together. And it was incredible to watch how God honored, how he blessed that conviction with unity. Not uniformity, unity. We didn't eliminate all our disagreements. We didn't ignore our disagreements. In fact, many of the times, we, we celebrated our differences. One example is the choir. The Korean church for many years had had a choir that participated in an annual Korean church choir festival. So after we merged, the choral director, who happened to be one of our elders, invited all of us to participate, the whole church. And many did. It got to the place where the choir was almost 50% non-Korean. And that's amazing because we sang in Korean. <laughs> so the choral conductor had to, had to transpose all of the Korean words into phonetically into English so that those who couldn't read the Korean words could still learn them. 
And many of them learn them so well that they memorize these words. Do you know how hard it is to memorize words that you don't understand? Yeah. So this experience, this experience of singing together, rehearsing together, performing together, became so unifying for our church that we began to use the choir as a metaphor for what God wanted to do through our community. We would say that there used to be four separate choirs, each one with a song they loved to sing, a song that they had sung for many years and they were very good at. But one day, our heavenly choral director came with a new song, and none of the four choirs could sing that song alone. So he brought us together to sing as one. And it wasn't easy. It was difficult to learn to sing alongside people who sang differently than we did. But what we discovered was that if we followed our conductor's lead, we were better together. Friends, we are living in an increasingly polarized world. And if we let it, the divisions out there will end up in here. And the only way that we remain different but undivided, the only way that we remain unified but not uniform, is if we follow our conductor's lead, his lead of love to love those who think differently, believe differently, and behave differently than we do. Because that's what's compelling to the world. That's what inspires the world to believe. So take the difficult path and fight for unity. Because when we do, we maybe discover that we truly are better together. Amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.